in fact, growing apostolic legacy, which means hopefully that we're growing, growing in knowledge, growing in <coughs> strength, growing in influence and impact, and that we are, of course, apostolic, which means that we believe in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in revival and being evangelistic-minded, kingdom-minded. And I know we have a lot of our folks that work down at the camp and that do different things. Thank you that are involved in trying somehow to uh, be uh, connected to um, <coughs> the kingdom in general. And then of course giving to missions and going, uh, doing some work and, and being uh, connected is, is uh, what it means to be part of an apostolic family. And we had of course a funeral or memorial service yesterday about Chris and and many of you have helped him and been involved in his life. So, what a what a great uh, uh, sense of being apostolic. And then we have a great uh, legacy, uh, a great history here, and that legacy uh, is of several years and 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 great ministries and great. Uh, <coughs> services, and I don't believe those are over. I don't believe those are in the past alone. Amen. We are able to build on that, and I'm thankful for that sort of, of history. But today is, in fact, Father's Day, and I want to wish everyone a happy Father's Day, and I'm glad that all of our men are here. And <coughs> I know that uh, you may not remember this. I had to kind of search for it because I thought I remembered it. And it was 10 years ago that a president by the name of Barack Obama said some amazing things. He actually was quoting statistics, but <clears throat> he made the statement, and I believe it was 2008, that <clears throat> uh, there's something about men. He said that um, children raised without a father statistically are five times more likely to be raised in poverty. <clears throat> They're a little higher than that to be, commit crimes and uh, just a little higher than 5% uh, <clears throat> or five times greater chance of them to drop out of school. He was talking about the importance of fathers and I know and that sometimes, you know, men, you know, we almost uh, idolize uh, that sense of men not being around. In fact, uh, Johnny Cash sang a song about a boy named Sue. And the whole premise was that his dad knew he wasn't going to get to be there to raise him. So he gave him a name where he'd have to fight and be mean. And nowhere in the song does it say why the guy had to leave and what it was about him that made him feel like he needed to be an absent father because he really shouldn't have been one. Amen. He shouldn't have named him Sue. He should have named him Bill or George or however the song goes. And yet 
children raised without a father are 20 times more likely to end up in prison. And that was statistics that were done secularly that were quoted by President Barack Obama, who was, you know, we would say would be a liberal. This wasn't a conservative, you know, we're think tank, we're trying to promote Christian value. It wasn't that at all. It was done by folks that were saying, you know what, without a father or a father figure, they're 20 times more likely to end up in prison. In fact, they had done a survey that 50% of all the female inmates that were currently incarcerated reported not having a male or father or a father figure in their life. Amazing statistics. Amazing sense of a testimony that fathers are important. And I, I realize that sometimes, you know, we are living in an hour in which fathers are often made to feel unimportant and non-essential to the fabric of our society. And yet the Bible is full of examples of strong men and that then becomes the ditch on both sides of the road. Because are we telling you to be aggressive and mean? No. And are we telling you that you need to, uh, you know, this is my way or the highway, and, and as a dad, I'm supposed to be just hard? No. But at the same time, we also are understanding that being a, a Christian and a father doesn't mean that you're, I put the word milk toast. I don't know if that's a real term or not. But it's not that, you know, you walk around as a man and say, well, whatever you want, dear, and it doesn't matter. Kids, what do you want? How do you want me to be? That's not the, there's a ditch on both sides of that road. And I realize there are times when people might say, well, you know, <clears throat> I don't, I don't want to be strong. I don't want to have any strong words. And I'm not... I'm not advocating now that you are violent and aggressive and, and beat your family up or throw things or curse or any of those things. I'm not advocating that. But at the same time, there was, Jesus was a great example of a man who had some pretty strong words for folks at one time or another. As a matter of fact, you know, he would, he called them, Pharisees, he said, you guys are a brood of vipers, basically fit for hell. And that's what he said. You can read it in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, the 33rd verse. It was kind of strong. Earlier in that same chapter, he said, you guys remind me of open graves with dead people's bones in them. Now, he wasn't cursing them, but at the same time, he was saying, here's some strong words for you. And you say, well, I, I don't know what that would mean. On one occasion, we did in Mark, the ninth chapter, the 31st and 32nd verse, actually his own disciples were afraid of him. He was telling them, he said, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And the Bible says his disciples didn't understand what that meant, but they were afraid to ask him anything else. I don't know why. They were afraid at that moment. I don't know if he was at that moment <clears throat> giving a, 
a very strong message, but yet there's got to be a balance between what I would call aggressive and pass, aggression and passivity, or maybe we call that being assertive. And I understand that that's a, a real term, but sometimes, you know, when people in an hour like we're living with the evil and where we're living with, it seems like things are being rammed down our throat and, and evil, the Bible says, men shall wax worse and worse. And it just seems like spirits are there. And I know, you know, amazing sorts of things that are, are taking place around the world. And I... And it's like you're going to have, a, you're going to accept this, and you're going to do what I, we say. You're going to accept this, and there's been what we would call, from a psychological standpoint, the emasculation of men that we have no authority or no power. And what happens for most men and women, I, I'll say, but in most men, is that when they feel backed into a corner, you're going to have one or two responses. It's called fight or flight. And so you either get mad and you get very aggressive and you, you get angry, you blow up, or you just kind of, okay, whatever, I, I don't know, sorry, I took a breath today. Huh? Sorry, I, I live. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you... You know, it's kind of amazing. And I, I realize dealing with the God of the universe, as a matter of fact, if you will just get on your concordance and, and try to look up the, the times that God spoke to humanity, more times than anything else, some of his first words were, fear not, don't be afraid. Because imagine God showing up. You're going to have a, you can't fight God. Your arms are too short. So it didn't matter whether it was Abraham, whether it was Daniel, whether it was Isaiah, whether it was John. I mean, he's knocking them down. All of these guys seemingly sort of hit the floor. And yet, why was that, that Abram had been praying was because he was recognizing that he was getting close to dying. Now that's an amazing thing when you look in Genesis. <clears throat> because one of this, the results of eating of the fruit was that in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, I know we talk about that being a spiritual death, and I agree with that. It was a separation from God. But imagine this. Not only was it a spiritual death, but it was a mental and emotional death. Because now, for the first time, they realized their life was not eternal. It's kind of like when you look at, and I put here, humans are the only animal that we know of that carry a burden of knowing that one day we will die. Now, I understand, you know, you can watch Discovery and find that the elephants will herd around and 
dead elephant. But I don't think that they leave from there and they get depressed and wonder, I wonder how long I have before I die. I wonder if people will come and come to my funeral. I wonder if they're going to roll me down and I wonder if the tigers will eat me or I wonder if the vultures. I, they, we don't have any record that animals have any sort of an emotional response to the knowledge that because they don't, we don't know that they have some sort of a knowledge that they're going to die. And yet all of us, the joy of being human is that, no one likes to talk about it, but is that, you know, one day I'm going to pass away. And so that elicits one of those fight or flight. I'm either going <laughs> to be afraid of that and, and fear that, or I'm going to try to fight it. I will. And so, you know, <laughs> and I'm not saying anything wrong with it, but, you know, if you, I'm going to take more vitamins and I'm going to get a facelift and I'm going to get a this and get a that. And I'm, you know, what we see actually, and we've seen it, you've read it, you know, people saying, a man, I've forgotten where he was from, that said he didn't get enough dates or something when he was listed as being 62, so he wanted to be listed as 42 or whatever. And the government wouldn't let him or whatever. I don't remember. That was in England or something. You know, I, I, Denmark. Okay. So you just, I don't want to face some certain things. And nobody does. We don't, we don't like to preach about it. We don't like to talk about it. It's not something that I want to deal with. You don't understand. And that's what Abram was facing when Abram said, Lord, I'm getting old and I don't know. And so the Lord appears and says, fear not, Abram. And then he goes on. This is even before Hagar. Abram was so concerned. And so what we find is in the, that men are facing and we are all facing, if, if really to be honest, and that is that fight of our faith. Because in this hour, what are we, we, are, we are being bombarded with sin. We're being bombarded with our humanity. We're being bombarded with what's going on in our life. And I don't know how, what's, how I can take it anymore. You don't understand what all's going on. You don't realize where I am. You don't know what I'm going through. And I, I understand. I'm not, I am not just blowing that off. But what I'm saying is the only solution to this kind of an attitude and the kind of attack that we're under is somehow to say, Lord, I want to hide my life in you. The Lord realized. He said, whenever they said the little girl is dead, he said, no, she's not dead. She's asleep. I'm thankful that when we come to God, we have life and life more abundantly. I don't know how it is. I know it feels like it's death. It's separation here. But somehow it's life and life more abundantly when you're serving the Lord. Amen. And that's what is the only thing that you can kind of have. And I, I, I realize that sin and evil is bad. In fact, less than a hundred years from when David was king, you know, Solomon, David was king for 40 years and Solomon was king for 40 years. And they went through an amazing 
thing with the building the temple and, and the gold and the splendor and all the, the highlight of Israel's history and just a 50 plus years from the death of Solomon, Ahab appears on the scene. And they say Ahab was one of the worst kings ever. Who would have thought in 50 years we could see the transformation? Not in America, I'm talking about in Israel, ancient Israel. Some of you are looking around and you're going, I don't even recognize this place. I'm talking as a student of ancient Israel, not as a student of America. I'm just saying, look at the sin. Look at the prevalence of it. And in fact, the Bible says Elijah who was not what you would say was very passive, and he was, maybe you would call him uh, tending to be aggressive, although really he wasn't being aggressive. He was being assertive. He stood and confronted Ahab and prophesied there was going to be no rain. First Kings, the 17th chapter. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. A powerful recognition of how what he said was. He was saying, listen, I want you to know, Ahab, I'm standing before God. And if there's ever a mindset that our men and that the church has to have today, it is not that we are, it doesn't matter what the government says, it doesn't matter what society says, our lives are measured and judged by God and God's word. I must line myself up because to his word, because I don't stand by whatever society allows or whatever they approve or whatever they uh, vote for law or legalize, but it's I stand before almighty God. That's who I stand before. And we need men to realize that's where I stand. Doesn't matter what they do. If they legalize, doesn't matter what they legalize. I stand before God. And that's Elijah's take. And he said, no dew or rain these years, but according to my word, that was a little bold. And so whenever he took that stand, we would have thought that the Lord would have said, great job, Elijah. You're awesome, Elijah. You took a stand in your school. You took a stand on your job. You took a stand that you were gonna not do what everybody else was doing. That's wonderful, Elijah. But you know how God responded to poor old Elijah? He said, Elijah, go eastward and hide in the brook Cherith. Hide? I just took a stand for God. I just put myself on the line. Go hide? I want, I'm, I'm a man. I, I thought if I took a stand... I would never have to back down. 
sometimes the Lord will let you take a stand and then he wants you to just keep your mouth shut. After you've opened it and told them all what you think, then just be quiet and take it. Oh, no, I'm going to keep telling. I'm going to stay in Ahab's face. That's not what God did to Elijah. He said, go hide in Cherith, that is before Jordan, and thou shalt drink of the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Now, Cherith, the word, blueletter.com, you know, Strong's Concordance, it means cutting. Boy, that, you know, have you ever felt like you just tried to do something good and then God cuts you down? Wow. Means cutting. And it's like going into oblivion, going into desolation, obscurity, aloneness. Go by this brook. Nobody out there. Go out into the desert. Go out into this little book, brook and stay there. And I thought I was, you know, riding high. Then he said, I want to feed the ravens to feed you. Now, ravens are considered an unclean bird. So, they're, because they're a scavenger bird. I, I don't know if you've ever seen ravens or what we call crows. But typically... If you run over a coon or a possum and the next day you'll see vultures and ravens. Huh? And can you imagine that's the bird that's bringing you food? It, it wasn't like, you know, the ravens flew to McDonald's and got a happy meal. It wasn't like they went to the back of Longhorn Steakhouse and dug through the trash. It was carrion. It was, and it, they, bread and meat and ah. And that's God's way of sustaining me. God, I thought I was doing right by you and look what you are. Are you kidding me? I know we've never felt that way. And yet somehow in this hour, no matter what we're facing and what's going on in our, the evil society, whatever, and you say, well, how could God allow this? How could God allow? I want to tell you something. How could God You've got, to, you've got to get something settled in your mind. I stand before God. No matter what I'm going through, somehow the Lord is able. He is able to do anything he wants. And if he's putting me through this right now, there's going to be something good that's coming out of all of this. I don't know how. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I can't figure it out. But somehow 
something, whether it's for a testimony, whether it's to change me, whether it's for a testimony for somebody else, I don't know. Whether it's to get me right, I don't know. But what I do know is I'm standing before God. Lord, I'm doing my best to serve you, and that's where it is. And that's what Elijah, because John said, Jesus quoted, said these words, these things have I spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the midst, uh, he said this, this was some of the last words before he, he went to uh, Gethsemane and prayed. He said, in me you might have peace. What are you saying? No matter what the storms are, no matter what's going on in your life, at some point there is a place in God where you can have peace. No matter how bad sin is, no matter how bad tribulations are, he said, in fact, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. In other words, put a smile on your face because the Lord has overcome the world. Don't think for a moment that sin and society have X God out. God is still in control no matter what's going on. And I know sometimes folks say, oh, I can't believe why doesn't God do this? Or why? I don't know either. But do I still believe that he is? And that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. What I'm going to do, no matter how bad sin gets, is I'm going to keep seeking the Lord. I'm going to keep having faith that God is and that he is a rewarder. I want to stay in the altar believing. Why? I have to pray through because sometimes I, I, I feels overwhelmed. And what are you allowing, Lord? And what's going on? But somehow the voice comes from the on high. I still am in control. I am still God and no other is God. And I'd still know what's going on and I understand that no one is exempt from the evil of this hour I, I, you know but yet you don't have to fear or have to feel that I have to rail against it at every moment now the Bible is very clear and I, I, I going here with the story of Elijah the brook dried up now I don't know if you've ever been around to see a brook dry up we don't have any dry brooks around here But if you've ever seen a creek dry up before, it's not a quick process. It's not like, you know, you turn the hose on, boom, and it's off. And, you know, there's a little bit of water that collects in the low spots, and the animals all come there, and before long, it's a muddy mess. And finally, the brook dried up, and Elijah had nowhere to go. And I'm sure at that moment he's feeling like, you know what, God, I thought, you know, I was doing what you want. And so the Lord speaks to him again. The Lord was the one that sent him to Cherith. Now the Lord speaks to him and says, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon. Everybody say Zidon. And dwell there. And I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Now, the word Zarephath means refinery. So that was like going from the fire, you know, frying pan to the fire. It means to be refined. And you remember who Ahab was married to, was a lady by the name of Jezebel. 
Well, Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was king of the Zidonians. <laughs> and so when he was, the Lord tells him to go to Zarephath, that's like going to Jezebel's territory. Can you imagine? This is the lady that's married to the guy that I've been fighting with. And you're going to send me to Hearst town? And it's not that the king will feed me, but a widow woman, which means that she would not have had a large amount of means. She would not have had a lot of money, whatever. In fact, she's probably worse off than you are, Elijah. And sometimes that's what, it, you know, we need to understand that sometimes, you know, there are people, no matter what I'm going through, that have it worse than I do. You understand? <laughs> it's hard to imagine sometimes if anybody has it worse than me. But believe it or not, there are a few that have it worse than I do. And so he goes to Zarephath and <laughs> walks into the city. He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city... A widow woman was there gathering sticks and he calls to her and he said, fetch me, I pray thee, water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was willing. She turned to go get him water. And then he said, oh, by the way, also bring me a little morsel of meal. Now that's asking a little too much. She immediately balked at that. It's like, I'll go get you some water because that really didn't cost me. That was from the city well. Had nothing to do with me. But when you're now asking me to put my stuff on the line, you've gone a little too far. And that's how this widow woman, it was like, are you kidding me? You know, I don't have, in fact, you read it. She says, I just have a handful of meal and a little bit of oil and there's no way. I, I am not able at all. I can't do that. I can't give you a little bit. I, we're in fact, me and my boy, it's, we're at the end. We're at the end of the rope. And so, you know, it, it's one thing whenever, you know, somebody asks me to do something that doesn't require my last. But imagine if God ever got to where he wanted to give my last bit of energy and my last bit of, well, that would be, a, that was, that's a little bit too much. But anyway, that's, that's what happened. She says, I can't do it. And Elijah, of course, tells her, he says, let me tell you what, if you go do that, the Lord will sustain us. And she does. And, you, and the Bible says for several days she kept going and there was a, a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil and, and there was never an abundant supply, but it was just like a little bit. And the Lord just kind of eked out um, an existence. And I know sometimes it may feel like I'm just barely getting by, but let me tell you, that does not mean that the Lord doesn't know exactly where you are and what's going on. 
on. You can't, you can't put it on, well, you know, if I had a whole thing of meal and a whole thing of oil, that means that God loves me. No, here was Elijah eating just a little bit and yet somehow the Lord knew exactly where he was and exactly what was going on. Now, what's amazing in this 17th chapter as you keep reading, and I, I know, I, my, I, my time is getting close to being over, but here's, here's what's the amazing sort of thing that transpired was, believe it or not, the little boy that was in the house died. After this miracle, she thought was just eating a little bit of meal few drops of oil, that child dies. And it says, and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick and his sickness was sore and there was no breath in him. And she said to Elijah, she turned to the guy who had sustained her miraculously, helped her through all of this and she said, What have I to do with you? Oh, thou man of God. I don't think that was said too kindly. <laughs> Who are you? Why did you even come to my house? It's because of you that my child is dead. You know, God and the church often get the blame for a lot of things that... Yes. They didn't do, you know? But that's where the, she was. Why? Because when we're under pressure and when we're being bombarded, when we're hurting, it's like the easiest one to blame is God. And she actually accused him of trying to drag up her past. She said, art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance? Are you trying to make me feel bad? And to kill my son? And what did Elijah say? Give me your son. Now that, it was against the law to even touch the dead. Only the high priest could or a priest who would prepare them and then they went through a ritual cleansing. But Elijah, it was like he immediately took the burden. I, what are you saying? I, I, am, I am so thankful for the church, the body, that is willing to embrace all the junk that people bring, huh? And say, just give it to us. We're gonna pray for it. We'll, we'll try to do our best. We'll do our best to, to try to deal with it. And he took it out of her bosom, carried it up into the loft. He didn't make a big spectacle, didn't lay it down in front of everybody and say, oh God, but he put it on his own bed. And this is what he said, oh Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? You know what, what he was basically saying there? Elijah was saying, Lord, I know you're the ultimate source. Did you do this? 
If you did, he didn't say, I'm going to be mad at you. I'm not going to serve you. But he was just trying to figure it out. Because, Lord, if you allowed this to happen, I'm here praying. I'm believing that you are able to either change your mind or heart or direction. You say, well, what should we do? <clears throat> when the evil gets bad and when things are going crazy, you say, Lord, are you allowing all of this? Because if you are, we're still with you. I'm on your team. I don't know why you're doing it, why you're letting it go, why you're allowing it, but somehow what I do know is that you're able. Elijah didn't turn to her and say, ma'am, do you have faith? It's not up to the church to ask anybody else to pray if my people... It's not up to us to ask anybody else to help. Why do you say, I, it's up to me, Lord. I know that you are and that you exist and that you are able. You are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. At this time, I'm not going to worry about what anybody else does. I'm going to pray through asking God to move in a mighty way in our nation in our community God raised the boy from the dead and I understand at this point and I'm going to stop our young folks are fixing to come in but is God out of control and is evil now in control I can tell you the answer to that absolutely not God is still in control I don't care if it feels like you're in Zarephath. I don't care if it feels like you're going through it. Don't ever forget this. God's still in control. God's still at the helm. You say, but oh, pastor, you don't understand. It feels like, you know, I do this and then this happens and this and then that happens and something else happens. Well, you know what? I'm still going to worship the Lord. Oh, this is how Job finally told him. He said, you know what? I don't know what all is going on, but naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, what are you saying, Pastor? What I'm saying is that Elijah still had faith that if evil happened, God was still in control. No matter what's going on in society, no matter, I, I was driving down the road and they, in North 21st Street, they're building a, a thing where they're supposed to sell marijuana right here in our little town, I guess, the way they were working on And I'm saying, Lord, what's going on? Why are you, you know what? It was like the Lord said, I don't worry. I got this. Huh? Oh, but God, there's a fight over this and a, you know, a parade here and a march here and and protesting. You know what? I got this. There's nothing that's going on that is not bigger than my God. Oh, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. I want you to know that in the midst of Zarephath, if it looks like this young boy has died, I'm telling you, all you got 
to do is bring it before God and say, Lord, if this is what you want, so be it. If not, I'm asking you to change. I'm asking you to heal. I'm asking you to deliver. And I'm telling you, God is able. Let's stand. Our Sunday school children, I think, are coming in.